Welcome to a special edition of the Inside the Pylon podcast. My name is Mark Schofield. I'll be hosting this episode. I know you're all probably used to hearing the sweet dulcet tones of a Mr. Chuck Zada at the start of these shows, but my good friend has been incredibly busy with the Mock War Room project. So he's on the shelf for this episode. He's off somewhere probably sipping some tea with honey in it and resting that beautiful vocal instrument he has. Uh, but big things often happen in the football world, uh, particularly the football evaluation world with the draft coming up. And so when those things kind of happen, we've got to make changes, adjust on the fly, and bring the next man up. And that's me. And one of those big things happened a couple weeks ago, basically, for football evaluators, for people that love the draft, that love this sport, that have the sickness, as we all kind of call it. Our version of Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo, all those great holidays uh, fell upon us with the release of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio from the great Matt Waldman, who has been kind enough to join me now. Matt, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Hey, man, I hope I'm some consolation for the dulcet tones of Chuck Zada. So, I mean, it's this, I, I definitely appreciate you guys having me. Oh, well, well, we love having you, Matt. And before we dive in, look, I got to ask, how much did you? How much sleep did you get the night of April first? <laughs> um, the night I actually got a fair bit of sleep, honestly, this year. Um, in past years, in past years, I would probably not sleep for about three days between, uh, you know, leading up to that. I would just be working around the clock. But as I'm getting older and as my process is improving, I actually probably got a good six, seven hour sleep, which is which was pretty nice. And I took a nap to sit that day, which was like, you know, after I released it, I got a chance to take a nap, which was like probably something I haven't done in quite a long time. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And the, the product is great as always. I can't recommend it enough. And now you're doing, like I, I told you this a couple of days ago, you're doing the George Clooney promotional tour. <laughs> you know, you yeah. got, the movie's cut, it's wrapped. You're doing the red carpet stuff, and now you're you're joining us, which is great. That's awesome, man. I, it, it's fun to get a chance to talk about the work that you do, especially when it's a long-term project like this. It's year-round, and you, you know you spend a lot of time alone doing this type of work and just watching tape and talking at your screen. So it's kind of nice to actually have a conversation with the, with a fellow human being, especially one who does as good work as you, Mark. Well, I appreciate that, and let's just. Briefly, what is the Rookie Scouting Portfolio? Like, how do you put it together? What is your process? Yeah, the RSP is a is an 11 year old publication. It comes out every year, April 1st, and it's really two parts. There's a pre draft portion that comes out April 1st, and a post draft portion that is um, much more fantasy football oriented that comes out a week after the draft. And what I do is I've created a concept based on business best practices for monitoring performance. And it's something that I um, did in a past career life for a number of years and had learned a, a best practice method for doing so. And I decided to apply it to football. I created a database. I created a list of questions and criteria that I use. Um, and I, I watch the players, take play-by-play -play notes on what I see. I fill out my checklist forms that I've created that are answering these questions that I'm looking for based on technique, athletic traits, um, you know, game situation, understanding, skill analysis based on that position because um, each checklist is a position-specific performance checklist on the players that I cover, which are quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. So I study all that information, and then about a month and a half, two months before I release the the, um, the publication, I I you know do I perform additional analysis after I've watched enough tape of everyone, and I kind of do this now as I'm going, as I kind of run through it, and I and I so I have a checklist that ranks players by you know basic skills I call breadth of talent, and it just you know think of a job. That any job, if quarterback was a job, there are certain skills that along a wide spectrum of teams, these are the basic skills a quarterback should have. Not every quarterback is going to have all of them, but they're going to have enough of them to be able to compete at, at a pro level. And then I look at depth of talent, and this is another way of examining that stuff by going through depth of ranking. Um, or depth of talent by stack ranking these players based on how well they performed each of these skills. And so my rankings are based on depth of talent, but then I do analysis of breadth of talent to kind of help people see, 
you know, which players might have a greater range of fit in a system where depth of talent can say, if you put them in the exact fit where the system is best used for them, they could star. How have you sort of refined the process over the years? I mean, you've talked about checklists and the film evaluation process. How have you refined it? How have you sort of reshaped that as you've gone through the 11 years you've been doing this? Yeah, and it's it's that's one of the beauties of this process, and that's why I think it's worked out so well. Is the process is designed for um, process improvements, and it's it's based that way because I'm I'm waiting, scoring, I'm trying to look at ways of um you know everything's based on having de- defined criteria for what you're looking at. So as time has gone on, I found that okay, there's I've learned different techniques about you know each position and have learned how to ask, use, define those criteria points in a way that ask the right questions. So I'll revamp the criteria points, I'll, re, I'll change how much I weight those points, and then I've also added in, you know, the first, when I first started, I, I just had the checklist and I didn't do the stack ranking. So the checklist was depth of talent, and then I started to evolve over two to three years after that to realize that um, I needed a depth of talent analysis rather than just a breadth of talent analysis. So I started to incorporate more, you know, analytical processes built into my evaluation where after I watch all the players and after I watch a player and study all the play by play and write all that down and grade it on the checklist, then I would use, create these tiers of saying, okay, you know, if a guy's throw, you know, his, his arm talent, you know, maybe, you know, short range accuracy. I would, uh, you know, how I define that and then how I would define it not only just for the basic skills, but how I would define it in terms of how talented is he in terms of answering the question of whether he fits on the spectrum of a, of an all pro player of a, of a starter in the, in the NFL of a guy who's a back, a first tier backup or someone who's trying to just make a team, you know? And so I would define, I'd have to define those things as well. So over the years, I've done a lot of revamping in that regard and it's yielded two different forms of two different dimensions of talent to look at. And it's allowed me to get a little bit more specific about how I look at players and it's helped me become more knowledgeable about the game. How important, how critical is film evaluation to this? Because a lot of people now, they look at measurements, metrics, other things. But for you, film is a critical critical component, correct? Yeah, I'd say it's probably 90 to 95% of what I do. Um, and certainly I look at, you know, combine numbers and and pro day numbers and and I factor in some of that information into some into the tiers that I have um, because certainly you know separation is a good example for a wide receiver you you have to have at least some component of, of speed or quickness to be able to play and to, to, to get separation effectively now that number for me as a baseline number is much lower than what people realize. I mean, I, I, I look at it and understand that, you know, a, a wide receiver who runs a four, six, five or a four, seven can still play in the NFL if they have other skills that compensate for that lack of great speed. Um, and, and you understand how that all fits together. And the way I define things that kind of makes it easier to be able to do that. So yeah, for me, the the numbers are important to an extent, um, but they're only in, they only either show promise, um, they either help you see the promise in a player, or they help you see on a fine grain level how much potential that guy has to be a star or you know in the league based on what other skills he also brings. Let's use that as kind of a jumping off point. I know people are probably tune it into Harris Talk quarterback, so we'll get there. But I want to start with wide receivers. I know that's a position you love to watch, you love to evaluate. What is it about the wide receiver position that you enjoy watching, and what do you look for when evaluating these players? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, it's a, it's a fun extension of the quarterback in terms of what they have to look for, um, what they have to read at the line of scrimmage. And it's a fun combination of – of one-on-one technique you know it's like if you if you like watching one-on-one if you like playing basketball one-on-one or like any type of one-on-one sport wide receiver is about as close to that as you're going to get 
in certain circumstances. Um, and that's usually, you know, against man coverage one-on-one in the NFL. Um, so I, I, for me, it's the, the art of seeing how they separate from the line of scrimmage and how they diagnose what they're going to do. Um, and then also just the toughness, of the grace and combination of grace and toughness that's involved to be able to um, get position and win the catch, especially during, you know, physical play that they have to deal with against a corner or a safety. What are your thoughts on this wide receiver class sort of as a whole? I mean, we're now at the point where we're, you know, coming up on the draft. We've got names that people are talking about. But when you kind of stick Take a step back, look at it from 35,000 feet. Do you like this class of receivers? Yeah, I actually do. I know people talk about it being a weaker class Uh because the athletic ability isn't as high. But to me, again, that athletic ability can be a misnomer. I was just having a conversation um, with a bunch of people on Football Guys about um, the, the class with Cordero Patterson and Tavon Austin. And as and a good example of you know updating your your um, process, I was doing that at the time during that draft class. And when I first evaluated a guy like Tavon Austin, I didn't think that I thought he had a lot of question marks. And then I started to soften my stance a little bit, even though because my I, I had a process that I was developing that I I've used for the past two to three years now. Um, but at that time, I, I had it developed, but I hadn't implemented it fully yet. So I was I was using this process at the same time as I was using the existing one, and I and my process had DeAndre Hopkins as my top receiver in that class. Um, but I decided that I hadn't used that yet, fully implemented it. I wanted to give it another year and see. And the old process I had leaned a little bit too much on athletic ability and and focused more on the upside of some athletic skills, and it made guys like Austin and, and Patterson much more highly regarded. So I think a lot of people still are looking at wide receivers in that standpoint rather than the technique. So when I look at guys like, you know, Treadwell and Doxon, um, Leontay Carew, Michael Thomas, Sterling Shepard, even even guys in the middle like Malcolm Mitchell or Tajay Sharp or even Mitch Matthews. Um, these are guys that show, and or even Jordan Payton. They all have some really nice technical skills to their game that I think are going to translate to the NFL as they continue to develop their skills and get acclimated to the speed and complexity of the game because they're showing more in a lot of ways than what I saw with the depth and breadth of the last of the class of the last class that we had, um, you know, come in the 2015 class. I wanted to ask you about Treadwell because I think he fits right in with what you're talking about. I think there are a lot of people that look at his, you know, raw speed numbers and think, Oh, well, this isn't going to translate well to the NFL, but yet he's still your top wide receiver. What is it about Treadwell? What does he do? Well, why does the four, six, five or whatever he runs the 40 and not concern you at all? Yeah, well, as a former quarterback, you know this very well, is that it's it's really about the first 10 to 15 yards of the line yeah. of scrimmage that, that make the difference. And he's the best at that, in my opinion, um, because of the fact that he has very precise feet. He knows how to get into the body of the defender who's pressing him and then manipulate him early enough so that he can use his hands effectively, use his footwork effectively, and he has a variety of skills to be able to either swim or rip or swat downward or to you know to use the arm over, and he knows how to vary his footwork to be able to set those things up. In contrast, a guy like Devontae Parker last year, who was an absolute stud as an athlete, he he was playing slot last year in Miami because he couldn't separate from the line right. of scrimmage against press coverage because one of the biggest issues he has, just like Cordero Patterson, who I mentioned, is that they don't understand that it's not about running away from the defender or dipping away as soon as possible. It's about getting into the defender to make that man address you and then being the aggressor with your hands and, be, and using your feet to set that up. And Treadwell does that as well as anyone. And once you get that early separation, you can control the pace. That's, you know, especially when you're 6'2", 221, you know, so he, he has excellent skills of being able to extend and win the ball. So you don't have to be, you know, pinpoint accurate all the time with Treadwell and also what he does after the catch. 
I mean, this is so for me, he's a physical player with good balance, with nice agility. He and and then on top of it, he's much more of a technician than people may have credited him um, in the past if they only looked at maybe pre-injury tape or they haven't really studied the tape as much as they should. Is the ability for a college receiver to win at the line of scrimmage to beat press coverage something that enables their transition and go to the NFL much more smoothly? And is that why Treadwell and guys like him project better in your mind? Yeah, I think so. I think they do. I think it's very important because that's the if they show some of those skills early, then you know they're going to be able to get onto the field and at least you, you know they're going to get better at it. The NFL corners are going to be much more skilled at this, and they're going to have to they're going to have to deal with it. But at least they have a starting point of understanding of what to do. If they've never done it before or they don't do it well at all, they're going to be completely lost out there year one, and maybe even have difficulty heading moving forward with year two. But you know, a guy for a great example of that I loved Marvin Jones coming out of school, and Marvin Jones was always seen as a possession guy. Until I, you know, but you watch his like sophomore tape and he was used as a deep threat. And then as a junior and senior, he was used more as a possession guy when Keenan Allen came aboard. Um, and looking at, looking at him at the senior bowl, he was one of the best at getting off the line of scrimmage. And when he came aboard in Cincinnati, he got early playing time. He wasn't great, but he showed the ability to run routes and to be able to get separation. And that is very important. So to, to me, it's you want to see a certain facility with that because you know they're only going to get better at it, but they have, but that gulf between what they're going to face in college and what they're going to face in the NFL is so broad, is so wide that they have to be able to at least show, to me, some ability early on or else it's, it becomes even more of a crapshoot. Who are some of the receivers in this class that are flying under the radar in your mind? And then who are some of the guys that you look at and people might be high on, but you're not quite so sure? Sure. Leontay Carew's a guy that's near the top of my class, um, uh, on top of my board in this class. And he's not totally being overlooked, but he's a guy that isn't usually mentioned in the top four to five. And I see a Roddy White, Reggie Wayne type of player, maybe with a little bit more juice or early on. Both those guys, Roddy White certainly had that type of juice. And when you think of Matt Ryan and when he thrived the most, it wasn't because Julio Jones was simply a great deep bet and Tony Gonzalez was there. Those guys certainly helped. But they, he also had a player that he knew on third and 12, he could throw the deep out in bracket coverage and hit it pinpoint, and the receiver's going to get open and catch it even with a man draped on him. And and Roddy White. That's huge for a quarterback. Yeah, when you when yeah, because you know, I mean, when yeah. a defensive back can't stop you, and you're going, I'm I'm gonna, you're covering my guy, and I'm still gonna hit this. It forces it forces that double coverage. It forces the safety to then have to play, um, you know, play inch over to White, and that gives the middle of the field to Gonzalez. It gives the deep range of the field more to Julio Jones. And when you think about the downfall of the Falcons' offense, to me, it's been since Roddy White got hurt more than it was um, Tony Gonzalez retiring or Julio Jones um, having injury issues from time to time. It's been really the that deterioration. So Carew's one of them. Um, I think another guy who that people are overlooking is Mitch Matthews. Um, yeah. I you know this is a guy that I remember watching a couple of times and thinking. He can run some routes. This is a guy who who has some nice double moves. He knows how to run that post corner or um, corner post corner. He has very he has pretty precise feet. He seemed quick enough to me, able to get downfield, and he catches the ball well. And then you look at then you start looking at the physical skills on top of that, and you're like, this guy's showing his technical skill, and he's six six two twenty five. And he has a 37. He had a 37-inch vertical leap when I, when I was look, researching him. And then you know, then his pro day comes up, and he runs a 4.4840, a 4.1520, a 6.88 three cone drill. This is 6.6225, six, yeah. and a 38. And then he ran a, and then he had a 38 vertical. And I'm sitting here, and you know, I, I read people saying, well. He disappeared in games. He didn't get good separation. And I saw some of the games people mentioned. I'm watching them, and I'm thinking, this 
He had 80 yards and a touchdown in that game. Maybe he didn't have, you know, maybe he didn't have 250 yards and two touchdowns to overly impress them, but what he did to get those 80 yards and a touchdown was, was definitely good. Um, guys that I'm not as, you know, Daniel Braverman's another guy I like in the slot. I think is a very good receiver, um, very good after the catch, extremely quick, and has that ability to stretch the field outside on the perimeter um, with his speed in a way that you think of guys like Austin Colley and Julian Edelman, um, Kevin Curtis before Kevin Curtis got hurt, and I think Braverman can be in that type of mold of receiver. Um, so let's see, guys I'm lower on. Tyler Boyd, I like mm-hmm. him. I, I think he's a good football player. Um, I just wonder if he's anything more than a f- second or third receiver in a in the mix. And fit's going to be a real big determinant of that. He can catch the ball really well, but I'm not, you know, overly enamored with him. Um, guys that uh, other guys that I think that people have, you know, really, li- you know, Kenny Lawler to me uh, is a guy that I think. Some people really liked um, for his red zone ability, but I'm not, you know, I don't think he's a complete player yet. And Farrell Cooper, I think a lot of people like Farrell Cooper. I think he's more of a manufactured touch player, a gadget player. And those guys haven't really done very well in the NFL thus far. Let's shift gears a bit. Let's talk some quarterbacks, which you know I'm looking to do. Um, at the outset, similar to the the way we started off with wide receivers, there's a lot of similar discussion that look, this isn't really a good quarterback class. Well, I you know I've got thoughts on that. And Matt, do you have a response to that? Yeah, you and I have talked about this offline a good bit, and that's yeah. just that I think we we both like the depth of this class a lot more than maybe even the past class or past two classes. Yeah. It's a you know it's a group of players that if we were looking. At the, if the league were different, if the NFL were different and they had, you know, they gave quarterbacks three, four years to develop. And, you know, they did the, you know, I, I think about it in the terms of Drew Brees. Right. If every quarterback got the Drew Brees treatment that Marty Schottenheimer gave Drew Brees, which was, we're going to let you play, we're going to start you. If you make enough mistakes, we're going to bench you. But I'm going to sit there and tell you, if the game gets close, I'm going to put you back in because you're my guy. Um, but there's some things you got to learn. I'm going to bench you for the next game, maybe the next two. But you're still my guy. I'm just giving you a chance to get to kind of process what happened and what went wrong so you can figure it out and not have that much pressure on you. And then two, three, two, three, four years, you're going to – you're going to be the guy that's never coming off the field. And I think if that happened, there are probably anywhere. I honestly think there's, <laughs> there's probably 12 guys that I think would probably fit that description in this class. Yeah. If they, if they had that chance that could at least develop, maybe not, obviously not into the next true breeze, but they could develop into guys that, you know, we've certainly seen in this league who are decent starters who can, you know, at least caretake for a team, um, if not be, um, if they had great surrounding talent, be able to help them get to the playoffs. Yeah, and I think that's, I would agree with all that, and I think it's part of the frustrating part, I think, to evaluating quarterbacks is that you and I have identified a number of guys, you know, some we agree on, some we don't, and that's fine because people disagree, but guys that if given that chance could pan out into perhaps long-term backup spot starter, but we, you and I both know haven't done the work and haven't seen this happen time and time again, very few of them actually will get that shot. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I joke that this is the, you know, that quarterbacking in the NFL or quarterback training in the NFL is kind of the equivalent of John Wayne and Hondo throwing the boy into the lake. Right. You know, it's like, you know, some of them are going to swim and some of them are not. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's just quarterbacking, not swimming. So, you know, some of these guys, their careers are going to drown um, in, in this regard because teams nowadays, they feel like, well, with the avid of free agency and the fact that we, you know, that owners see players succeed early, they go, well, if Robert Griffin succeeded early, why can't we draft a guy who we can put in right away? If Ben Roethlisberger succeeded early, why can't we do that? We need to do that. And they make those types of decisions. But most NFL owners aren't really football men. 
They aren't really guys who really understand the game at the level that their coaches do, that their general managers often do, and they often override decisions. The, right. the pressure for tickets, the pressure for the entertainment factor, all of that weighs in, and they don't have patience for their own coaching staff. So coaches feel like they need to get these guys in fast too because if they don't, um, they may not be there long enough to see – you know, see everything come to fruition. I mean, I think of Kirk Cousins, and I think Kirk Cousins is a perfect example of a player who developed by accident. Right. You know, and and I don't mean that like he's dumb and he's not he's not a talented guy. It's just that he was considered a a backup who got to play in and out and got put in and out of games and bench, but there was never any pressure for him to really be the starter other than self-imposed pressure, which is enough. But he. You know, he had the he had the luxury to really learn and not feel like that he was um that he had the whole franchise on his shoulders and and the type of pressure that comes with that. So now that things are starting to get a little bit clearer for him, it, you know, he, you know, he starts to produce a little bit better. So I think that that's the type of thing that if we could afford that to players who are even more talented than Kirk Cousins, we would have a much richer quarterback situation in this league. Yeah, and that's part of my fear with this class is that you look at even guys that you and I have near the tops of our boards, and I think there's potential there for these guys to become, you know, pro ball caliber type players, all pro type players. But if they're thrown to the wolves week one, I don't know if there's a single guy in this class I'd be comfortable with saying, okay, here's the, here are the keys to the car. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's one that I feel like has – as good or a slightly better chance of Jameis Winston um, last year, and that's and that's Jared Goff for me. But that's but even then, it's it's not one that I'm thinking. Oh, they're gonna they're gonna win with him. It's gonna right. be he'll survive. He'll he'll survive, and he's not gonna end up in a shell and and his skills deteriorating. Because if there's one position in this league where you can watch a player do a lot of good things in the college level, and then watch it get beaten out of them, both physically and just morale-wise, it's quarterback. I mean, I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly, that, that that type of thing can happen and you can lose it. And I think that Goff has the – I think Goff is a tough enough guy and smart enough guy that he won't lose it. But um, but he's the only one that I think is, is really the um, – is really in that position, and I wouldn't want him to be in that position if I could help it. Yeah, I mean, I think all of these guys could at least use some time, yeah. eight weeks, eight weeks, to just get acclimated a bit and refine some of the flaws in their game. And before we dig into a couple of these guys, structure versus off-structure, that's something you and I have talked about a bit offline. And it's something that people take the quarterback evaluation process and kind of maybe weigh it differently. How do you look at the ability of a quarterback to make plays on structure versus off, and how does that fit with your evaluation process? Yeah, I mean, I look at a variety of things, and I think it's embedded into just in, as important to to everything that's in there. And I think it's they're they're equally important. That's kind of how I look at it. I don't know how that comes out in terms of exact point weighting with my with how I score things. So if you're if you have more of an engineer's mind and you're going to go add up whether my you know, whether add up that's the case, I might be wrong about that. But I look at it as, you know, the the fact that a, a player needs to be able to understand how to execute the play. He needs to be able to understand how to use the correct footwork and the correct, um, you know, ability to read through progressions to to find the open man. And he has to understand the, the basic skills necessary to avoid pressure and do so that he can so that he can be, remain technically sound with his throwing motion and being prepared to throw the football. So those things are all technique and all within structure, if you ask me. But then there are skills that you have to have when everything's just blown up. And I and I definitely believe that those are equally important. Now there are you know Tom Brady and Brett Favre operate outside of structure very differently in the, during the length of their careers, but they both did it well. They just did it in different ways and expressed it in, in different manners. Favre had a greater range to do that than Brady did. Um, so really it's just a matter of, you know, you have to look at that's where kind of fit within an offense comes into play um, in it as well as, 
you know, how players express themselves. You know that you move Brady off his spot, and it's a little easier to 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 take care of him. You move Favre off his spot, and you're wishing that you hadn't. So it's a, you know, it's it's one of those types of situations where I, I like to look at. I, I think more than anything, I look at players on on an individual basis in that uh, in that degree, and you can. The, the way that I structure things, I think, identifies the strengths that they have well enough that you can you can kind of cross compare different styles. Yeah, and that kind of gets us to the idea of what you've termed flow within structure, which I've kind of taken to mean the ability of a quarterback to kind of improvise and push the envelope of a play a bit, but not wildly out of control. Like to still kind of stay within the designs and react to the stimuli that he sees, whether it's a blitz, whether it's a rolled coverage, it's still effectively operate the offense. And I think, you know, there are examples of that in this class that will allow them to translate well to the NFL, I believe. Absolutely. You know, Cody Kessler is a good yeah. example of that as a, as a guy that, you know, maybe from a set play standpoint, you're not going to want him to scramble a whole lot, though he's fairly quick type of player who can do, do some of that. But, you know, maybe he's running a, maybe he's running the design play where they're sprinting out to the left and the snap is off, or he stumbles, or a defender gets in the way due to penetration, and he has to bounce the play a little bit wider. He still seems to figure out, he still has a good sense of the tempo of how the play should develop, where his receiver should be, and he'll improvise well enough so that he can make sure that the ball gets where it's supposed to go, rather than derailing the play because of some penetration. Whereas a guy like Brett Favre in the past, while he could do that as he got older and became a little bit more adept within it's within the structure of, of of the play, he was an example of a guy, or maybe even Vernon Adams is a good example of that now. Yeah. Vernon Adams would be an example of a guy who maybe the play starts to lose its structure. Instead of doing what Cody Kessler would do, he'll just reinvent a situation, but he has the athletic skill and the arm to do so. Um, and both are equally... Um, both are, to me, are equally positive traits, but there are going to be situations where, you, you know, for Cody Kessler, there are going to be situations where he may be limited because he won't be able to, to maintain that flow within the structure. He'd have to break the structure, and that's where he may fail, whereas for Adams, he'll have to learn to be able to continue that structure and find mature ways to do that so that he doesn't always have to rely on going, okay, it's playground time. Right. Let's start with Goff, and he's your top quarterback, and that's something that I would agree with. He'll be there for me as well. Are people sort of overthinking the offense that he ran and ignored what he was able to do in that offense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I, I think that if we didn't see enough exposures of him making some of these tough bucket throws, making some tight throws into into coverage, or having to deal with pressure in a way where he had to work off script, um, then I would agree with that assessment that maybe the offense would would be an issue, but I think that that's a little bit of a bogus analysis mm -hmm. um, more than anything because yeah, he shows the skills to play inside outside structure, also to make some of those difficult plays that are more NFL quality in terms of passing windows, and I think that he also shows the skill to diagnose pressure and make the adjustments and know where his open man is. And it's not just, oh, well, you know, this is my plan. The offense is so spread far apart that I never have to face any difficulties at the line of scrimmage. And all I have to do is just drop back and throw the ball. That's one description that you could say that I would characterize that I've heard about from a, from a GM in the NFL. Um, I haven't heard directly, but secondhand through someone who has – talk to them about golf early this season, which was like, mm -hmm. all he does is sit back there and throw the ball when I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well, you know, you can watch plenty of games over the past two years where he has to sit back there, diagnose pressure um, within about two to three seconds before the snap. And when he sees that, it, when he confirms that within, you know, a half a second, he now only has another half second to set his feet and throw the ball deep. And he's able to do that with pinpoint accuracy across to the opposite side of the field. And I think that's, he made that, he makes it look easy. And it was an easy one-on-one -on -one play, but it was because his mind did the, did the hard work. And a lot of times we get overly impressed with players who do all the hard things physically 
but don't find the easy answers mentally. And golf does the finds the easy answers mentally. Let's talk about his footwork because I feel like that's also another area where people might be overthinking golf. And this is something that you and I actually talked about a bit when we did look at him on tape and that his feet are always kind of moving. There might be isolated incidences where he's moving too much, but it's more a function of, and you put it in the RSP, it's kind of how he processes information. He's just moving his feet at times. And I think he's incredible within the pocket and how he moves around. So, I mean, talk about his footwork a bit. Yeah, I mean, to me, footwork is like the expression of, you know, how a writer writes sentences or how a speaker, you know, how he talks. Uh, as you're listening on here, I tend to stutter. I stammer a little bit. There's going to be times that I repeat words and, I, and that, you know, I'm not the most articulate guy who's going to do a Toastmaster speech, you know. So, but at the same time, you get the point across, I get the point across of what I'm trying to make. And I think that when you look at a guy like Goff, or Peyton Manning, or even Brett Favre at times, you would see players who, you know, their footwork is good enough for them to be able to get their point across, and that is being able to be in a set position to throw the ball accurately. And they can do so with pinpoint accuracy, but their feet may be in a way where there's a little bit of nervous energy there. They're, they're, they're seeing things a little faster maybe than than what they're seeing or they're seeing a lot of things happening at the same time and it's kind of like they're a little bit jittery because they can think of maybe two to three options at the same time and they have to kind of keep it under control and I think that golf has that kind of quick mind and that's why his feet maybe seem a little unsettled but it's not unsettled in terms of actually delivering the ball and one of the things that he does just so well is to make those small steps to adjust his feet so that he's throwing the ball accurately as things happen in front of him. A lot of quarterbacks in this class, when they have to move from progression to progression, their feet don't move with them, and then they're throwing from awkward angles. Goff doesn't have that problem. And Goff Goff also understands how to make something as small as one step with maybe just his back foot to avoid pressure up the middle and be able to then throw the ball you know, right off of that with accuracy on a play where a lot of quarterbacks would have had to turn their back to pressure and try and run or try and roll out, or they would have just ducked down and dropped to the ground and taken the sack. And, and Goff's footwork gets a, should earn a lot of credit for that. Yeah, and you've, you talked about this in the RSP. We've talked about it on and offline. It's like a boxer adjusting his body or just making enough room to throw yeah. a punch. He does that in the pocket, on the fringes of the pocket so well. And it's really, I think, a joy to watch golf in the pocket. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that I think the boxer analogy is a perfect one with him. And it's and he's willing to take the hits. Yeah. And it's and it's the type of thing that you don't. He people talk about how he doesn't have an unbelievable arm. Well, he has a very good NFL quality arm. Yeah. I've seen we've both seen throws yep. of sixty yards from a platform stance. 50 to 55 yards opposite hash, you know, and he does that with good footwork. You know, it's, it's a, he, he's not doing that. It's not the Brett Favre arm where you, you, he's making impossible dreams of a throw from positions where even wizened coaches are going, he should not be able to do that. Like physically, he should not be able to do that. Well, you know, if you're if you're always looking for the next Brett Favre, who I've mentioned a million times right. here, right. you know, and then your then your standards are too high. You know, you're like the you're you're like the the person who's going wants to go out on on a date and looking and going to a matchmaker and saying I want I want a billionaire who's as smart as Bill Gates and who looks as good as you know Christy well, Brinkley yeah, and, you know. Yeah, and all that kind of thing. That's what people end up doing a lot of times when they're evaluating quarterback prospects. Your number two guy is Cardale Jones, which um, maybe not a lot of people might be there with you. Some are, I think. Um, Some might not be. What is it about Cardale that when you see him on tape, you think, okay, there's the tools here to translate to the NFL? And that's exactly what it is to me is that I – I, at first, I, I didn't really, you know, I watched the, the final four games from the 2014 season and that great run Ohio State had, and I just watched it as a fan, and I was kind of cautious, 
Right. And my buddy Sigmund Bloom of football guys is like, he's a first round quality pick. What do you think? I mean, look at this, look at that. And I'm like, well, you know, I haven't really studied him with the process I use. So, you know, I see elements of that, but I, I don't really want to go there yet. Let's see what happens next year. Well, you know, 2015 came and went. The the offense was kind of a mess, especially in the red zone, especially with all these talents they were trying to get the ball to, and the fact that Tom Herman left, their offensive coordinator, who Jones worked with for three years as a third-string guy, and that uh, this offense was really designed for more of a runner than it was a drop-back passer, and Cardale Jones is a drop-back passer. So so a lot of that didn't work for him. So I went back to the 2014 tape, and I – and I thought about, I, I looked at things, and we'll talk about some of the mistakes. You know, certainly there were times that he maybe waited a little too long to throw the ball, or there were situations where um, he and his, re- his receiver weren't exactly on the same page for either a pinpoint throw or for, for him to pull the trigger and feel as confident about pulling the trigger. Um, there were situations where in the inside the 20 or inside his own 20, um, uh, either the red zone or inside his own 20, where he, his processor wasn't fast enough. He wasn't executing at the pace that he should. And, but, I was, but when you watch the plays, I look at what he's doing, and I think he's seen what needs to happen. He yeah. was either hesitant, and, and, and I thought, this guy hasn't played football in three years, right. and now he's getting thrown into the biggest games of any quarterback could possibly have in college football. He's getting thrown into that, and what he is doing is showing that he's aware of it. He just wasn't on point because he doesn't practice with his receivers like that. He doesn't have that in-game rapport with these guys, and he's trying to do it against Alabama, Oregon, Wisconsin, and you know, and the like. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is pretty darn good, even for that. You know, even for that situation where he's having this hesitancy. So then you look at the things he's doing well, like you know, throwing bombs with getting plastered up the middle, being able to avoid pressure, reset and throw with some accuracy, the skill to to be able to throw on the move, the the different throws he made in the middle of the field with he didn't do a ton of it, but the ability to 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 anticipate and hit with pinpoint accuracy in the middle of the field was pretty good from what I saw. Yeah. And then just all the physical skills that were there and I, then some of the adjustments that I did see him make, I thought this isn't a bad. This is a, this is actually a very good quarterback. This is a guy who, you know, who just needs more time and who, who has who's doing the things that are hard to teach, like playing playing like an anchor in the pocket. You know, right. anchoring in that pocket and making those throws or being able to avoid reset and throw and and some of the things that are easy to teach or that come with more experience like speeding up your process you know in the red zone yeah. um some of the decisions you make when to fire the ball and where to put it on your receiver um where he likes it and where he tends to break on certain routes that comes with experience and he didn't have any of that so the fact that he did this well with this little bit of a showing he ended up scoring a lot higher for me um, in my evaluations and ended up edging out guys that a lot of people like more. But I think you give this guy a year or two in a system and let him, let him develop and get his confidence, he could be a very good starter in this league. I'm going to put a scenario out there. It's late in the night, first night of the draft. Uh, everybody's a little punchy because they've been watching football and the draft and had an adult beverage or two, but it's pick 29 and the Arizona Cardinals are on the clock and you see Bruce Arians and he's there in the war room. How badly do you want to see Bruce Arians send the pick in and it's Cardale Jones? Um, as as a somewhat of a Seattle Seahawks fan, I do you don't not want to see that all? at all. <laughs> but, as a, but as a football fan in general, yeah, absolutely yeah. I want to see Cardale Jones there. That is the perfect scenario right. for him. Yeah. It's, it's, a great, it's a great pick because, he, again, we know, as you allude to, Bruce Arians loves the deep ball. You have the receivers to be able for him to target like that, and you have a, an offensive line and running game that's getting better. And he's someone that should be able to take over that job from Carson Palmer, who's going to be a good veteran from the to work with. And Palmer's probably old enough at this point to to not be um, stingy with wanting to lend advice and help over time. Carson Wentz from North Dakota State, who's a guy you and I we kicked off this draft season back in August, looking at 
Um, number three guy on your board um, might be higher on other people's, but I think you still kind of appreciate and can see in him the ability to translate. When you look at Carson Wentz, what are the things that will translate well, and, and what areas does he really need to improve before he makes the leap? Yeah, for me, I, I, you introduced him to me, and it was a you know it was fun to have you on my show in the RSP film room, right. and yeah, we watched it together, you know. And some of the things that we that we got to highlight and talk about were his ability to learn and make mistakes in game and learn from them and not repeat them even yeah. in big moments. And so that was very telling against Southern, I think it was Illinois State that yep. we watched that game against um, from last not last year but two years ago. So I like I like his short passing game a lot. I think that his ability to run the play action sets where you you know where you work from the eye formation or different pro set styles, drop back three five steps, use a little play action and make the quick throw. He can hit it from anywhere on the field in rhythm, and I think he does a good job with that. And if you get you know if he's throwing passes and within ten to twenty yards, I think that his his accuracy is pretty good, and this is an area that's not going to be much problem at all for him, and he's only going to get better at it. Um, I, I think that he's – I love the physicality. I think that, you know, what he does outside the pocket as a runner is unusual. I think he has – you know, he's got good speed. He's, he's a very flexible athlete. He's a strong guy. So, you know, maybe you don't want him being a runner for you, but he can be a very good runner when, when he gets in the open space. So that short to intermediate passing game I feel pretty good about, um, and those are the areas that I think that will make him thrive. And then the, I guess the, the negatives for me is I, I, I have seen some issues where I felt like he missed some, some, some easier reads in every game or most of the games that I've seen where – you know, maybe he's reading. He, he has a chance to read that cornerback, linebacker, safety triangle, and 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 spot where there's going to be a one-on-one mismatch, and he'll end up ignoring it for what his normal progression looked like it was going to be, mm-hmm. even if it was a, a more difficult throw. Um, I saw some of that. Um, I saw, you know, switching from progression to progression he could do, and he certainly has no problem with that. But his feet don't move with him, as I alluded to, with what golf can do. And so he ends up throwing from situations where the ball sails or dives and he he doesn't throw with enough control because of that fact. So he's got to get a little bit more crisp with his footwork in that regard. And that deep ball is is an issue because it's like he's still trying to find his accuracy meter there. And it's like it's one of those situations where it's like, it's a little too far. It's a little too shallow. And it's like, he's always trying to calibrate it. And it never seems like that calibration is completely on point for him. And to me, once he can get that deep, once he can get that deep ball going, the rest of his game will click in terms of opening opportunities for him. But to me, the biggest thing I want to see is him making, finding easy plays to make and not always having to, to resort to his, big arm, his athletic ability, or the high difficulty throws, you know, the, the better he can get at make, finding the easy throws, the better he's going to be as a, as a quarterback in the NFL. You talked about it a bit in the RSP, and I want to address it quickly. The scheme fit for Weds, I mean, where we just talked about Cardale Jones and Bruce Arians, that would be a great fit, but if Wentz happens to be on the board when Arizona's picking, I don't even know if Arians has Wentz near the top of his board because I don't think that would mesh well. But where do you see Wentz fit, Wentz fit in, in terms of a scheme perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I would think that, you know, Cleveland, I think, would probably, with Hugh Jackson, I think that that would probably be a reasonable fit because, I mean, what they did with Andy Dalton, Andy Dalton is not – He's a decent deep thrower, but he's not unbelievable. Um, I think that a team like Philadelphia, where they don't have um, a great deep passing game at this point, and they don't have the surrounding talent, in my opinion, that are great deep receivers, um, but they're decent intermediate guys who can make plays after the catch and get open in that range, wouldn't be a bad spot. Um, you know, I, I, the Rams and Jeff Fisher – I think from a they could probably fix things in a way where you know the short and intermediate passing game would would be a, a reasonable focus and also 
Wentz would have an opportunity to get better with the deep passing game when the, with a guy like Todd Gurley around where he can, right. uh, you know, have the, some of those really easier throws to, to make because of gr- what Gurley clears out there. So those are some of the ones that I guess come to mind for me. How about you? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, kind of, and I said this with Goff a bit when we were on his RSP, sort of that Ernst Perkins-type short intermediate passing game like what New England runs where, you know, you take the deep shot from time to time, but you really focus it on that 5 to 15-yard area of the field. Like, that's where Wentz does best. Like, when you get yeah. beyond, like, 20 or so, the accuracy dips. He's like, and you talked about it just now, he's like a kid in trying to, like, maneuver his way around a new house like he doesn't know if he should jump this far or just jump a little bit and that's the way his deep ball is and he's gotten better i think if you look at once in 2014 it was bad 2015 it was better but he still missed some throws so he can get better at it but you know you drop him into bruce arians as a lap and expect good things to happen and you might be disappointed yeah absolutely i agree with that wholeheartedly um, you were getting short on time, but there's a couple of names I want to touch on, even if it's just pretty quickly. Paxton Lynch, um, he's your number four. You and I are on the same page there. A lot of people are higher on him. What's the sort of downside to Paxton Lynch? He's a guy that I look at. You, you can you can make the argument that might have the highest ceiling, but he could also have the lowest floor. Yeah, I'm just again, I I didn't see him as a guy who who made the the greatest reads on a consistent basis. Um, I felt like the accuracy tended to suffer a little bit um, in terms of, again, getting his footwork right. Um, so, I mean, those were two issues that I think that he's, you know, and game management as a whole just needs to get, to get better. He's not, I would say that he's not unbelievably far off in terms of, um, What's the the things that plague Wentz? They're I think that they're they're kind of players that they each one could have a better career over the other. It's just as a matter of how much time they get to develop and how well each of them work at their craft. Um, and I think Wentz is going to be there. Um, Lynch I think has that ability too, but it's you know for me he. He's a guy that has that gun and has that deep arm right now. He'd be a guy that I wouldn't mind seeing in Arian's system right. and work backwards from there because the arm is there and the, the deep ability is there. It's just that it's more the short area of the field that I think he has problems with. Yeah, and with Lynch, it's still a situation where he's only four or five years removed from running the wing tee. I mean, yeah. you want to talk about a kitten or a puppy. I mean, there it is. He's still really grow it into position so i think more than any of these guys in the class he needs a you know maybe two years to fully season and if given that opportunity great but if you drop him into jeff fisher's lap yeah then and force him into action early and you try to run an offense that might be you know focused more on the short intermediate areas of the field again you might be setting yourself up to fail one guy I want you to talk about is a guy that you introduced me to early in the season and kind of a guy that's not on a lot of people's radars, and that's Arizona State quarterback Mike Bercovici. Yeah. Did you get a chance to watch him? What do you I think did. of him? I, I, I didn't see enough. It, it's kind of like the where you and I are on Vad Lee, where I really like him. You didn't see enough with me. I didn't see enough, but I, I could see why – People should like him. I can see why he's definitely worth people, you know, taking a look at before the draft because there's a guy that if you scout the traits and not the scheme, you're going to come away and I think you're going to be impressed. But he was kind of a square peg round hole situation, I think. And you talked about this in the RSP. I think he's a guy that makes plays really quickly. I mean, you want to talk about a guy that can process information fast. It's almost a frenetic pace to him, I'd say. Yeah, I would agree that agree with that. It's kind of, and and he has the big arm. He's a, he's yeah. only six feet two oh six, but he's got a huge arm, and he's got he makes some of the tough throws that a lot of players can't make at this level, and you hope they'll develop. But he already does that. Like some, you know, watch like a the game against UCLA this year, and you'll watch him throwing back shoulder fades like it's nothing. Like he he looks like he's throwing a James Jones out there. In a, and he's wearing a yellow helmet with green, uh, with a green jersey sometimes with the way he throws some of those right. back shoulder fades. But he's also fairly mobile and can throw the ball off platform. Um, I think that he's a guy that 
you, like you said, you know, the the system fit was more of a run. The quarterback ran a little bit more. They wanted to dump the ball off a little bit more. Quick decisions, quick throwing, but not so much drop back, go through progressions, and 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 lean more on the quarterback as a playmaker as opposed to an executor of a system. And I think that they used him more as an executor. And then if they had to lean on him as a play playmaker, you could see some of those things happen. But he, you know, he misses coverage a little bit at times. He'll, there'll be some linebackers that drop back that he doesn't see. He's He can be um, – I think he can be a little bit too aggressive with some of his decision-making. Um, but overall – I think that get him in a rhythm pass in a passing game where he's really throwing from rhythm and and be able to make the most of his gunslinger mentality. Um, get him paired with a you know an athletic receiver or a big receiver who can erase you know erase some of that need to be absolutely pinpoint on a regular basis. And I think he can be good. And I think he's going to develop. I think he'll be an undrafted free agent. But I think that. He's the type of player that could end up sticking with the team and maybe developing over time, and at least being a backup. Um, but I, but I wouldn't be surprised if if he develops into a little bit more. If you were given sort of godlike powers over the NFL, which I would frankly be all for, I think the game would be a lot better if you were given <laughs> these powers. But if you had that and you could put you know this guy on any team, where would you want to see him? What would be the best pl- spot for him to land? New Orleans. Really? I'd like him. Yeah, I'd like him with Drew Brees. I'd like him either behind Drew Brees, um, where he has a couple of years to to just be in Sean Payton's system, um, and and learn behind a guy like Brees. I think that that would be a good would probably be one of the better setups that I could that I could imagine um, because of the fact that he's got that. I think he's got that kind of athletic ability, and he's got that. He, he he would have an aggressive-minded coach. Now, again, they ran more this year, but still, um, I think that I think that he's I think he could learn a lot from a player like Breeze. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good way to put it. I don't want to, you know, I hate to draw this kind of to a close on a guy that we're both down on that others, you know, might be higher on. But I do want to talk a minute for uh, a minute or so about Dak Prescott who's a guy that we're hearing now, you know, taking visits to Denver, perhaps maybe the fifth or even fourth quarterback off the board. You know, he's near the bottom of your rankings. He's near the bottom of mine. Is it accuracy or accurately inaccuracy? Is it decision-making or is it just a combination of stuff that you don't see him having the ability to make the transition? Yeah, I mean, to me, quarterbacks, I think the thing about quarterbacking that is so important is that – People break down. There's so many aspects to the game and to the skill set of that position that are important that people can tend to want to lean on a few of them that are really notable, and they don't understand that more than any position, quarterbacking, you need to be able to have the ability to tie everything together. You have to integrate all those skill sets so well, and it's about what's going on, you know, really upstairs to be able to integrate all of that and make it make it flow and work. And while Dak Prescott to me seems like an intelligent guy, and he certainly I've seen him as a as a leader on this team um, do some good work. He's a guy that you look at his arm and his accuracy, you look at his mobility, and he does things really well in spots, but he doesn't do things in an integrated fashion that you need to see from an NFL quarterback. So there are instances where he's, you know, you'll watch him roll out and throw a 20-yard throw off platform that is just absolutely beautiful and no one else, maybe few players could actually um, throw that ball with the kind of pinpoint accuracy he did. But then ask him to do something like drop back five steps, um, go to look through three progressions in the manner that he should look through them in terms of timing, and then go back to the open man or find, you know, or go to that third progression and throw the ball accurately. He can't do that. Like, so when I see the, when I see plays that require him to use a variety of those skill sets, he may use one of them or two of those things well, but then you have to tie the things together like drops 
moving your feet into an accurate position, making the read on time and throwing, it's just not there. I think he's oftentimes either comes off his progressions way too early right now, like he's not familiar with doing them for any length of time. Um, And I don't think that he moves well in the pocket except in very isolated instances. So it's not a, you know, it's the type of thing that he can score well for someone if you see him with a certain number of viewings. But if you're really looking at what it takes to, to really play at a mature level and use all of those skills together, it's just, it's not all firing and yeah. they're all not, all the things aren't firing that way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the two things that really stood out to me during this evaluation process of the press call, one was the inaccuracy. I mean, and it's not just, you know, the intermediate throws. I mean, you're talking like five yard outs or quick curls that are just not even put on the wrong shoulder. I mean, they're leading the guy back towards coverage. They're leading them, you know, towards the middle of the field, stuff like that. And, you know, you touched it on the RSP and you touched on it here he can do progression reads and stuff, but he's almost too quick with them. He gives up on structures and gets himself into worse situations in the pocket when you're expecting a dig route to come open and he doesn't even, you know, he looks at it and then looks away before the guy even makes the break or is close to doing it. It puts the office in a precarious situation. Yeah. And that's a, that's a very important thing because you, that timing to watch routes break open is so important and it's and it's having a feel for what for how all well that works. You know, Cody. If you put Cody Kessler in Dak Prescott's body, yeah, you, you would have a top. You probably have the the second or third quarterback on, on this. Uh, uh, you know, in this class, maybe yep. even higher. Yeah. But that's the problem. Is that you know, Dak Prescott is just learning those things. He played in a system that used his athletic ability more than it used his processing ability as a quarterback. And that doesn't mean that he's not smart enough to play the position. That's a big fallacy. It's just that he's not experienced enough at that aspect of the game at this level. So if you, you know, and at this level of football, you have to have some of experience with this over a period of time to make that next jump. And if you don't have that, it's much harder to learn it. So even if he's a really smart guy, and I get the feeling that he is a smart guy, um, the experience factor still matters. And it's, and it's one of those things that I just don't see him making that leap to Donovan, you know, Donovan McNabb status that people are comparing him to. Maybe athletically he compares somewhat to McNabb in terms of build and those things, but McNabb was a much savvier quarterback right. coming out of Syracuse. Matt, I want to give you a minute or two to talk about Darkness to Light. That's an organization that you do work with through the RSP. Tell the listeners what that is, what they're about, and how purchasing the RSP sort of contributes to what they do. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, Darkness to Light is an organization that is designed to prevent sexual abuse in communities, um, as well as to train people on how to properly address the subject of sexual abuse when it's reported to them. Um, Because that's one of the most damaging aspects of sexual abuse, and we saw how it played out in the Penn State community. you know, a few years ago in 2012, where you you had a lot of good people who were trying to do the right thing, and they didn't know how to do the right thing, you know, and and that that created a that creates a lot more issues for the victim, for the families of the victim, um, and that compounds part of the issue that makes sexual abuse so insidious. Um, so, what this organization does is that they do training of adults. In you know it can be individual training. They do classroom trainings, group trainings. Um, they work with police organizations, fire departments, teachers, um, civic organizations of all types, and businesses to to help them understand how to approach this issue. And you know through the use of research and stats, um, it's one of the only programs that where it's where its um, methods have been. Um, study from an academic scientific standpoint and proven effective. And what I do is I donate 10% of each sale of the RSP since 2012 to Darkness to Light at the end of the year. Um, and I've always make that transparent to people in terms of, you know, at the end of the year I post on my blog, you know, what's donated, that kind of thing. Um, 
but it's something that I've been doing because I felt like that if I had the time, I would probably help out with this organization if I had the opportunity. Um, but I don't doing what I do, and I thought that this was the next best thing was to be able to raise some money for an organization that I believe in, doing something that I love. And so the, this gives you know my readers a chance to to be a part of doing that, so that when they you know download the RSP, they also know that they are contributing to a really great cause. Well, it's great that you do that, and you know it's it's important work that they're doing, and it's great to have somebody like you that does great work yourself helping them out. Matt, if people that have listened to this, if they haven't gotten the RSP yet, where can they pick it up? Yeah, you can go directly to www.mattwaldman.com, and that's the direct site to download from, and you can, you can get it there. If you want to look around and find out a little bit more about the RSP, you can go to mattwaldmanrsp.com, and that's my blog where I have all my articles and information, and you'll see it on the main page there about the RSP, what people are saying about it, and, and videos that show you a little bit more about the product. Well, Matt, a huge thanks to you for coming on. People go out there, grab yourself the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. It's great work. I cannot recommend it enough. And you're also helping out a great cause as well. Give Matt a follow on Twitter. He's at Matt Waldman. While you're out on Twitter, you can, of course, follow Inside the Pylon, which is at IT Pylon. And, of course, I'd invite you to check out InsideThePylon.com. For Matt Waldman, my name is Mark Schofield. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out the work that Matt is doing. Check out Inside the Pylon. And thanks for listening.